The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Well, I invite your attention to the book of Mark, chapter 15. And uh, as you are turning there, that's page 852 in your Pew Bible. Uh, especially want to welcome those who are joining us on Facebook Live. We appreciate you. Uh, thank you so much. And uh, if you are on Facebook Live and uh, you have the ability to get to a church, get to a church and f- find fellowship there. So glad you're with us, though. Thank you so much, as God would allow. As we come together, I do want to present an idea to you, and I'm really excited about it. Amy Center uh, is probably the brainchild behind it. At least she continued the thought. We're, gonna, we're probably going to make some T-shirts, guys. And it's going to say, I survived, and it'll have that crossed out. And above there, we'll say, I survived slash loved the gospel of Mark at Tower View Baptist Church 2017 to 2019. And we're going to wear those in about six weeks, okay? And when we're done with Mark, we're all going to wear them together over whatever Sunday best clothes you have. Does it sound like a good idea? Because we are almost three years into this study, and... uh, Y'all don't seem as excited about it as I do, so uh, <laughs> just kidding, but you do that to God's glory. After service, we are going to pray for uh, John and Teresa uh, Moody as they are headed out this uh, this coming short time, this week, brother, I think it is, to uh, go to West Africa, uh, and uh, we'll do those more details offline, but after service, just briefly, we'll pray for John and Teresa as they go uh, this week to serve. Well, the ironies, the beautiful ironies of the cross are Mark chapter 15. Well, friends, I think it goes without saying, but there is no message that has been more used and more explained and appropriated than the message of Jesus Christ. It, it happens whenever a politician co-ops one of Jesus' quotable quotes and promotes his own platform. And as a result, every career politician becomes a Christian for the election cycle so that in either major party or neither party, everyone believes that Jesus is on their side. Because you know Jesus is a Democrat, a Republican, a Green Party, a Tea Party, and every other party in between. Amen. That's a joke, by the way. Every religion in the world, too, has done this. Jesus has become something of them. He, he, they honor him as a prophet. They're enlightened by him as a man, or they reject him as a prophet or whatever it is. Or they hail him as the king of the universe. And even some religious leaders today cannot avoid claiming actually to be him. And those people walk around. We have a walking, quote-unquote, Jesus in Florida down in Miami who claims he's Jesus incarnate. And when all this takes over the years, it's no wonder no man has been probably more misunderstood than Jesus Christ himself. The great irony is, is that despite being the most discussed and confessed member of all humanity in history and the historical figure therein, he is, Jesus, the most marginalized and commoditized or commoditized, commercialized person himself. For today, he's a generic brand, he's a logo, he's a catchphrase, Amy will throw this picture up, he's a buddy Jesus, he is whatever you want him to be. He is fictionized, he is humanized, and he is, sat- satir- he is made satire of, can't get the words out today, by Hollywood. 
He's been romanticized by countless admirers, and he's uh, sanctified by the Christian consumer culture. Even in the church itself, we have been guilty of marketing Jesus, haven't we? We put down our own gloss on him and our own spin. So it's no wonder, as we come to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, even this very famous passage that we know so well, we have spent decades trying to correct because we have sold the Jesus cast in our own image. There's the Puritan Jesus, who when you get out of line, some of you remember these days where he'll slap you on the wrist for being a bad boy. There's the, uh, you might say, the postcard kind of Ken and Barbie Jesus that has copper-toned, six-pack abs, blonde hair, blue eyes, and he looks like Charleston Heston from 1965. And he is a two-dimensional figure. He never does any wrong, and he tells you moral tales to help you through your time. And then there's the flat portrait of the evolved Jesus that is the get-out-of-hell, monopoly-free card that if you just pray this prayer, Jesus will forever forgive you. You can live how you want. Go live it up because our lives are devoid of his presence. We designate him as Lord and Savior, but this is merely a label that has become the superficiality of Jesus-centered religion. He's role model Jesus. He's therapeutic Jesus. We know a bit about what he said and did in these Gospels, but not enough to be dangerous with it. But pastor, how could such a simple message become so messy? Because friends, the world does not want the simple message. They want the message to fit whatever they want it to fit. Would you agree? And what we know is we're going to remove the gloss this morning. I want to remind you this morning that God himself died on a cross. He died because our sin was so vile and so wicked and so heinous that only he could save us. He did not die like others. He died under the wrath of God. Sure, he was crucified like others, but none of them suffered under the the wrath, the anger of God for the sin of the world. And our purpose this morning is to remind us how the utmost price that our Lord paid. Friends, and this is a longer introduction than usual, but you will see it is not this buddy Jesus, but it is the verse that Amy will put up now. Paul admonished the Galatians, did he not? In Galatians 3.1, he said, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Friends, there's no religion in all the world like Christianity. God himself came down to die for us. There's no other religion that makes such a crazy claim that God came down to die for us. That just sounds wacko even saying it, but by God's grace, we accept it as truth. Amen? But he died a terrible death. He died a death that the Romans had perfected, stolen from the Persians, and it stuck ter- struck terror in people. And by the time that Jesus had been uh, crucified, 2,000 men and women and children, perhaps, we don't know all the extent, had been crucified. And by the time Rome was done in Judea, over 30,000 people would be crucified. So why this man? Why this death? Why this way? It's all beautiful ironies, because the big idea today is simply this. As they mock him, they submit to prophecy. As they lift him up, they exalt him, and as they kill him, he conquers. Don't you love that? When God seems out of the picture, he's doing the most work. As you look around America today, and you see a culture that has gone so far away from the foundations of our forefathers, even in the biblical worldview, whether they were Christian or not, you can debate that till the cows come home. But friends, we have shifted away. Even our families, even our churches have got away from this message, guys. 
This is it. This is it. If there's a hill to die on as a Christian, this hill is worth dying on because it involves our Savior and what it means. Not a fake Jesus, but the real Jesus. Four important details this morning. We're just going to walk through this very simply. I want you to see the calculated time that Jesus died. I want you to see the criminal charge laid against him. We're going to take a detour in Luke 23 to talk about the the thieves on the cross with the corrupt association. And then I want you to see those condemning insults they threw at him as he was dying on the cross. So if you're able this morning, will you join me in standing and getting your weekly exercise and steps as we stand for the honor and glory of God's word this morning? Reading from Mark chapter 15, we're going to start in verse 25. In most of your Bibles, this is a a halfway through a heading, and that's okay. We're going to read down through the end of verse 32. And actually, I'll start in verse 24, and we'll pick it up from there. And they crucified Jesus and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide which one each should take. And verse 25, it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, or could be an insurrectionist or, or, or thieves, one of his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. So, verse 31, Also the chief priests with the scribes mocked to him, to one another, saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Friends, I'm going to warn you the same way I had to warn my heart as well. This is so familiar to all of us. You've heard it. You hear it preached. You've taught it. You've read it. You've seen stories on it. You've done a lot with this passage. Do not let familiarity breed contempt to this passage. May God open our eyes to see old historical truths anew, and may God open our eyes to see new truths, perhaps, that we may glean from this, but all glory to God as we do. Let's pray together. So good to see you this morning. Let's pray as we open up this morning. Father, as we come before you, we thank you so much that your Son is indeed everything he said in the Scriptures, despite the attempts to make him something that he is not, Father, even in our own selves, Father. We know that he is always who he was, who he is, and who he will be. Father, we thank you for this scene, this very somber scene that we're going to study, very familiar to us, Lord. But as we trek through it, Father, would you challenge us? Would you comfort us? Would you convict us by your Spirit? And would you make us come to know Christ better? That is our prayer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe seated, guys. Thank you so much. As we come to this, I want to remind you, as Amy puts up the first point, the calculated time, I want to remind you that Jesus has just been shaken up. He's just been beaten. He's been hung on the cross, and now we are in the final hours of his life. You see there in verse 25, it's a very quick point, but verse 25, that there was the third hour when they crucified Jesus. We know this to be about 9 a.m. after the 6 a.m. sunrise, so three hours plus six is nine, when the Jews started keeping their time. So this time would have been approximate. It could have referred to the actual time that it started or when he was lifted up. We don't know. 
But this is the same time that in Acts 2.15 it says these people, quote, are not drunk, as you suppose, since only it was only the third hour. So this 9 a.m., this third hour in the early church was very important. Acts 2 and Pentecost and now the death of Jesus. Jesus has had a trial before Pilate. He's had a trial before Herod. He's had a second trial before Pilate. He's had a death march through Jerusalem, Jerusalem to the hill of Golgotha. And now he stands at the appropriate time. And from a divine perspective, this was always the plan, wasn't it? This was always the plan for him to die at this time. Not only the how and when of where he would die, but all that he would die this way. And friends, the Passover lamb is going to be nailed for our salvation. And as Amiel put up the first point here very quickly, is that one of our greatest sins, isn't it? As we think about this, one of our greatest sins is impatience with God. Not trusting Him when we need to trust Him, but rather doing things according to our own plan. If we knew how much sin had cost our Savior, we would be reminded that we have no control over when He came. Remember, they searched and searched. First Peter says that even the angels longed to look into the coming of Christ. They wanted to, and God gave them types and shadows, but they didn't know the exact time. And yet, this is exactly what it is. Friends, this informs us as a Christian to ask the question, do we trust God's timing more than our own? I mean, really, do we? Do we trust Him more than our own timing? Because have we considered how our current actions may be more manipulative than patient? For what is the rush? But if you're not a Christian here today, or if you're watching online, this is the time that God has given you the gospel. You're listening at a time when you hear the gospel. And God has placed you in our midst to hear the truth. And when Jesus died at that 9 a.m. hour, it was the exact time God the Father had prescripted. And so, friends, we know very clearly that this is the time God had set. But church, I want to remind you as well that if we were in charge of it, we would have tried to send Jesus right away. We would have just, if he's going to come, let him come. Get it done. Let's, let's get people saved. Let's get the gospel out there. But church, I think this has a word for us as well. Because this timing is something that comes up. I had to ask myself this question. But have we allowed our opinions on what should happen here at our church to become forced instead of patient? Just as God was patient to bring about the fruition of time at just the right time, Romans says, have we allowed God to do the work here for whatever that is, and whatever it is in our church it needs to be done at the time he's ready for, or the time ours is not? Look, when we got uh, the, the response from our web post this morning that our emails were hacked and all this stuff and blah, 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 think, Lord, it's Sunday morning. Like, who does that on a Sunday morning? Couldn't it be Monday at like 3 o'clock in the afternoon? Isn't my timing better than yours? And when the water comes in slowly in the other building and the water heater goes out in the same morning, you just want to pull your hair out, right? God, why? Why is this time? God, why, did, why didn't this happen like Monday's one thing, Tuesday's the next, and Wednesday's the next? Think how our Savior felt when the wrath of God came on him all at once. Because if we were in charge, we would have said, you know what, God, give me a little bit now, give me a little bit later, but Lord, don't do anything too crazy. But when Jesus died, it came all at once. It was just the right time. Church, I pray as we think and pray and go through things, as we engage members who are no longer active among us, as we look, rewrite bylaws, as we look at design team stuff, those three trains on the tracks we've mentioned, 
that we are as patient with one another and with God's timing as he was with us and with his son's death and its timing. May we do the same to God's glory. That's a quick point. Second thing I want you to see this morning is the criminal charge, the criminal charge. Look back at verse 26. And friends, we know this, but it's very interesting to note how the Gospels play this out. In verse 26, Mark tells us that it was the third hour, and the inscription of the charge against him read, King of the Jews. Now, whether this was written in black or red, we don't know, but it was hung around the neck of the criminal. Uh, the, the placard was hung around, or sometimes they'd take a pole, almost like at the Olympics, and they'd, they'd have someone walk ahead. Remember, Jesus has come with a, uh, with a group of four soldiers and a commanding officer, and it's been displayed all day. But Pilate is using this as a political subversion to get back at the Jews for all their craziness they've done against him. He is making himself out to be a king, but as the Romans and Jews know, there's no king but Caesar. So Jesus is being told to be a revolutionary. He's being listed as someone who subverted the government. Now note this, and you don't have to go there, but Mark has the most concise way. He says, king of the Jews. In Luke's gospel, it says, this is king of the Jews. In Matthew, it says, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. And then John wraps it all up together. He says, Jesus the Nazarene. So when you put it all together, the sign said, this is Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And what a warning that would have been, because it would have been written in Greek, would have been written in Latin, and of course it would have been in Hebrew being in Israel. And John says, the Jews went to Pilate and says, how dare you put up King of the Jews? He ain't our king. We didn't vote this guy in. And he says in John 19.22, Pilate says, what I've written, I've written but it's a counterfeit charge. Did Jesus really subvert the government? Are, are Christians really supposed to be pro-anti-government uh, pro people? Well, the answer to that question is yes and no. If the government says, stop preaching Jesus, you stand up and say, Jesus Christ, all the louder, right? But if the government comes and says, you know, you probably shouldn't be doing 80 in a blind person, 15 mile per hour zone, you better listen to that advice, right? But Jesus has said at least four times that I could find that he was submitting to Caesar. Note these references. They will not be on the screen, but you can write them down. Mark 12, 17. Give to, to who? Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. John 18, Pilate questioning Jesus. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was so, then the soldiers would be fighting. As it is, my kingdom is not of this world. He didn't come to overthrow Rome. He came to die for our sins. Matthew 5, 41. Matthew 5, 4, 1. Jesus told them on the Sermon on the Mount, whoever forces you to go one, go with him two. Some of y'all hate running, but that's how, that'd be like me coming alongside me. Like, like, you just ran your mile and you're about to die of a heart attack, but let's go run another. That's how the Romans treated the Jews. If you want to run or if you want to you be in good spirits with the Romans, carry my gear. Oh, well, don't just carry it one mile. Why don't you carry it two? And they can pull you aside at any moment, just like they did Simon the Cyrene last week in verse 23. So, friends, what does this mean for us? The charge that Jesus has is a false one. And in Mark chapter 8, verses 5 through 13, who did Jesus heal? He healed the Roman centurion's son. Jesus is not anti-government, but he's anti-anyone who makes their government anything bigger than who he is. Does that make sense? 
Our politics are not determined by our party. Our party should be determined by our Scripture and our convictions from Scripture. And that's why Amy will throw this up. Unless you are able to live sinlessly like Jesus, suffer miserably, or be accused falsely, and be murdered brutally, point Jesus Christ, the people back to Jesus Christ, not yourself. Friends, when he died on that cross, Jesus had every right to stand up and say, that's not true! How dare you say this? How dare you say this? How dare you say this? But he kept silent. As he stood on that cross, he didn't fight back. As he stood on that cross, he did not point people back to claiming his name. He pointed back to his Father who was to be glorified. And friends, there are times, although, and I don't want to make this about us even with this point, but there are times as a Christian you're going to be falsely accused for something you did not do. You could have five reactions. You could doubt yourself. You could allow the lies of the enemy to pull you away from Christ. You could be paralyzed by the fear of man, haunted by your soiled reputation. Is this what people are going to think of me forever? You could be tormented with regret. If you had just done this or that, then this would never have happened. You could be enraged and want to go on the war path to defend your name. Or you could transform into a defense attorney. And everyone who comes up, you've got a, a seven-point outline with like 50 subpoints ready to argue your case. But our Savior never did any of that, did He? In the suffering, many of us are tempted to falsely accuse our Lord. When we suffer and our name gets drugged through the mud, we say, God, this isn't fair. How dare you do this? I followed you faithfully, God. Why is my name being drugged through the mud? Yet our Savior was drugged through the mud, and he didn't say a word back, did he? He let it be. If God really loved me and understood what I was going through, he wouldn't or he would do fill in the blank. Isn't that what they're saying to him later on? If God really loves him, why is he still on this cross? Friends, our Lord does understand. I'm so grateful. He gives us a window into the depth of the love of Jesus Christ. Jesus knew false accusations. He knew what was becoming of him, but he still loved you anyway. He loved you so much that he took everything, and that all who enter into the kingdom are no longer living for themselves, but they're identifying with the falsely accused. Christian, you're never going to be understood by this world. Get over it. Get used to it. It's okay. But your Savior's with you all the way. Amen? And that's what you need to know. Third thing is this we see. We only see the calculated time, the criminal charges, but finally the corrupt association. This is the passage many of you had questions about this week. Because Mark, if you notice here, Mark does not go in the detail of the other Gospels, does he? We know there are three crosses. We know there's a, uh, a man. We know there is a uh, thief on both sides. We know those things. But it's kind of like, if, how many of y'all have ever driven along the Blue Ridge Mountains out in uh, the East Coast? Some of y'all have been down there, Blue Ridge Parkway, been there a few times as a young man. And they have what's called the Easter Continental Divide, right? On one side, the rain flows down to the westward, towards the Mississippi River. Literally, if it rains on one side, the water goes down the Mississippi. On the other side, it flows down to the Atlantic Ocean. You know that? Uh, been down that way. It's a very beautiful area, by the way. So two raindrops that land one centimeter apart can literally go thousands of miles apart. That's crazy. And in this story of the two thieves on the cross, that's exactly what happens. You have two thieves, two men who are condemned criminals, insurrectionists, with two totally different responses. And yet, 
Our lives are represented by one of them or each. Look back at Mark 15, 27. And it says this. It says, as he was being crucified between two robbers, one on his right and one on his left, it, it says, and, and, and well, that's where it leaves off. And I'll get to verse 28 in just a minute. But friends, these guys had two things in common. They both wanted Jesus to save them from death. They did not want to die. They did not believe what they were dying for was wrong. They were actually going against the Roman government. But these were the men who were criminals, and they were happy to die in the sense that they thought they were right, but one of them thought he was a little bit different. Luke chapter 23, and for sake of time, I won't have you go there, but in Luke 23, one thief changes his mind, does he not? One thief changes his mind about everything. I want to give you three quick things about this thief because I think it's very important. The first thief who changes his mind understood the difference in seeking God, help from God, and seeking God for himself. The one thief that comes to Christ, which is not in Mark, but in Luke 23, is concerned about being right with Jesus. The thief realizes what he needs is not a change of circumstances, but a change in his life. And instead of asking God for the life he wants, he wants the life that God wants for him. And another way to think about this is, you know, how many of y'all ever had a flat tire on the side of the road? How many of y'all have AAA? Praise God. They do this for you. And I don't know how to change a tire. Please don't ask me. But there are some people who have those old tire irons in their car, right? They don't look pretty. They look kind of nasty. They're not something you just put up on your dash and be like, hey, man, check out my tire iron. No one really loves a tire iron. No one really likes to display it. But you wouldn't want to be caught without one, would you? You don't love it. But when the time comes and you know how to do that thing and AAA is out of cell service, you need to have it. And friends, that's how many of us see God. He's useful for some end, and we need Him just at the right moment, but it's not beautiful in and of itself. And one of these thieves is going to see Jesus just like that. He's going to see Jesus as this guy who's just another criminal. But the other thief, by the Holy Spirit's grace, is going to see Him as God. Do we see God as useful or beautiful? It's really the question. The repentant thief, the one that comes to Christ, also understood his guilt before God. In Luke 23, he says, we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. We're receiving the due reward of our deeds. They understood, he understood that what he was suffering for was what he should be suffering for. He understood he was dying for going against the state. And repentance recognizes that sin is first and foremost against God. How do you know when someone's ready to receive Jesus? They look vertically and say, my God, my God, I've sinned against you. Like the parable Jesus gave, do you remember that? When two men walk up to the altar to give their money, and one man takes all his money, rings out his credit card and his debit card, and he's like, Jesus, you get all this, woo, 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 here's the money. And all the people are cheering for him, go Pharisee, go, go Pharisee, go. And then the other man, the tax collector, who had more money anyway, can't even lift his eyes up to heaven. And he beats his chest and he says, God, how could you forgive me, a sinner? How could you forgive me? And which one does Jesus give affirmation to? The tax collector. The one who saw his sin and his guilt first before God. If you're not a Christian, can I encourage you that your guilt is before God first and foremost? 
you have sinned against your fellow man, woman, child, old, young, all that stuff, but primarily like David, Lord, I've sinned against you and you alone. I'm not going to be judging you on salvation day, on judgment day. God himself will be judging you. If you're not a Christian, you need to know that you stand with guilty before God, but this Jesus loved you and died for you, even when he took your death. So this repentant thief, and I've, we just don't have time to chase all the verses, but I want you to see lastly the repentant thief boldly dared upon Jesus' grace. He boldly dared upon Jesus' grace. When you think about it, in Luke 23, the Scripture tells us that he just basically asked Jesus, Jesus, forgive me of my sins, really what he says. I know you're the perfect Lord, but wherever you go, whatever you're doing, will you stop and remember a guy who for 30 minutes has done nothing but deride you, has done nothing but get in trouble? Jesus, will you forgive a guy like me? And the only crazier thing than the request that this man had is that Jesus actually said yes. Because if we were that man on the cross, we'd look at him and be like, buddy, I mean, you got yourself into this mess. You got to get yourself out of this mess, right? It's kind of like when our kids like dump out all the cars in the middle of the living room. This, this didn't happen yesterday at all, I'm sure. And, and we're getting ready to go to the pumpkin patch for the first time before monsoon comes around. Hey, guys, guess what? Two minutes. Two minutes. You need to pick up your cars. Well, I didn't get out my cars. He got out my cars. And she got out my cars and all this stuff. You got yourself into this mess. What are you going to do about it? But you know what? We look at the thief and say, buddy, you, you rebelled. You stole. You tried to kill. You did all this bad stuff. It's on you. But the crazy thing is, Jesus looked at him and said, today, not tomorrow, not after baptism, not after you serve the church well, not after you walk down the aisle, not after you pray a sinner's prayer, not after you go to church youth camp, not after you give a tithe, today you will be with me in paradise. That's awesome. Guys, this means we don't have to be, got to be careful with this, you don't have to be baptized to be saved. Look, if someone, if someone comes and, and they get saved right here and they walk across that street and fall into some manhole and we never see them again, they get eaten by the alligators in the sewer lines of Kansas City, you know, and they die, are they still a Christian if they're truly repentant? Yes, they are. But if that person's able to be baptized, they should be baptized. That's the command of Christ. You are not saved by your baptism. Look, this man had nothing to offer Jesus, and Jesus looks at him and says, Today you'll be with me in paradise. That's awesome news. Because God says that faith alone saves us. This is why we are so exclusive about Jesus, is it not? Because the less exclusive we are about Jesus, the wider that door opens to false stuff that comes in. Well, but you just need Jesus to get you in the front door and you have to figure out the rest. That's not what he said. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. You may have spoiled your life away. You may not have anything else, but if you have the ability to pray and reach out to him, he's not far from us, and that is enough to repent, to claim his grace, and believe that Jesus alone saves you. He is enough, amen? And that's what we know. But I want you to notice something. Did you notice there at the end of verse 32? Did you see that? Those who were crucified reviled him. Did you catch that? So when did this man get saved? 
Friends, it was some time between this moment and the moment of Luke 23, this second thief who came to Christ, who went to heaven, somewhere on that cross, as Jesus did not revile, as Jesus did not do anything, as he stood there, he knew he was an innocent man. He didn't know he was perfect, perhaps. He didn't have all the theology, I's dotted and T's crossed, but he had enough to know there's something different about this guy. Verse 32 is an actual truth. At some point, that thief was not saved. But at some point, Luke 23 tells us he got saved. That's awesome. Do not give up on people in your life who look so far gone. Jesus can change a heart through the power of the Spirit in an instant. And that is the truth that we have. Look, less than 1% of people who come to Christ have a deathbed confession. But there are a lot of people who look and act and talk like a Christian who've been in church roles for years who think themselves saved who come to this point. Friends, you can have your name on a church role for years. You can serve in this church for years. You can give lots of energy, time, and money to this church. It doesn't mean you're any more saved. The only moment you are saved is like the thief. God wrecks your heart of stone, and he puts on a heart of flesh. And how do you know when that happens? Oh, you'll know. And everything about you is going to change. That's what I love about this thief. That someone who can go from reviling him to to knowing him can happen in an instant. I don't know about all the bombings that's happened in Saudi Arabia. We don't have a TV and Apple News. I don't, it doesn't work half the time. But we know there's been a lot of bombings over the East. Should we get involved and all that stuff? I don't know. But one thing I do know is you pray for all the terrorists over there that, that, that God would save a soul. You pray for all the homegrown terrorists we have that God would save a soul. You pray for your neighbor across the street who's the most outstanding citizen that he, he's in every 4th of July prayed because he's the most outstanding citizen. You know that guy? Everyone without Jesus needs Jesus. Amen. Pray for him. Let God know him. Last point is this as we close out today. I want you to see the condemning insults, guys, the condemning insults. There's been a charge, there's been an association, he's king of the Jews, um, uh, a corrupt association, a calculated time, but now the condemning insults. Look back at verse 29, it says, those who passed by were yelling insults at him. Guys, this would be no different than if, uh, I I recall back in, uh, I think it was 99, when when Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City bomber, was taken to court for the first time, they show the same footage every time they bring up his name, and people were yelling at him, How crazy! How could you do that? How could you do that? It was a public spectacle. To be crucified was a public thing. And it says in verse 29, And those who passed by derided him. They They said unkind things your mom would wash your mouth out with. Do you understand? They said all sorts of things that you and I will never say, or hopefully never say, and uh, that's what they did. They derided him. And as Brother Nelson read from Psalm 22, they were fulfilling prophecy. They wagged their heads at him. Can you wag your head? Our son Seth does this all the time. He likes to do this. Hey, how you doing? Well, wag my head because I'm too in that. I just do that. But they did it angrily. They did it because they thought that was what it was. How dare Who are you? You're king of the Jews. You're not saving us. And it goes on to say that he went to not only wag their heads, they said, aha, you would destroy the temple in three days? You can't build it. You can't even save yourself. Do you remember that prophecy? John chapter 2, Jesus told them, you destroy this temple, referring to himself, and I'll rebuild it in three days. They thought the big temple, their, their, their home, their Kaufman Stadium, their Arrowhead Stadium, their, 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 their cream of the crop. But that wasn't at all what he was talking about. Friends, as they do these things, they are clearly misunderstanding who Jesus is. 
and they're clearly doing these things in defiance of him. Save yourself? How about yourself, big man? You can't even save yourself. You who did all these great things, friends, that is the voice of Satan. And these are like the three friends of Job. You remember those guys? The guys who had all the advice in the world, and they got around Job in the book of Job and said, Job, you sinned against God, your mother sinned against God, your half-sister sinned against God, you're just a sinner, and God's punishing you because of that. This is the modern-day version in A.D. 33-ish that happened. Then in verse 31, the religious leaders mocked him, and he said, save others, can't save himself. Let the king of Israel come down from the cross. Friends, they had seen the miracles. They had been a part of the miracles. Some of their people had been healed by the miracles, and yet they say, show us more, show us more, show us more. Friends, this world will never be satisfied with the evidence you give them. You can give evidence until the cows come home, but unless God changes the heart, nothing matters. Look, you can know how to defend the archaeology of the Bible, the, the perspicuity of the Bible. You can do all these apologetic-related things, but if people don't have a changed heart, it doesn't matter. Jesus had already shown them who he was, and they wanted nothing of it. People like me have to be careful. We like to argue with other people because we grew up in that debate world, and we have all this knowledge. Nelson and I will talk to people on Facebook, and we get red in the face. We'll come down the hall and say, can you believe what he just said? Can you believe that? Our brother over here on Twitter, he's argued with atheists and agnostics and every other person over there. Friends, it's not the argument that wins. It's Christ, by the Spirit's power, changing their heart. If you can argue them into Christianity, they can be argued out of Christianity, right? So they mock him. Amy will put this up. But Christian skeptics of the Christian's faith will always mock Christianity as simple, unenlightened crutches and unsophisticated and praise God they are exactly right. They are. How do we win this world to Jesus Christ? It's not because we have better programs. It's not because we have better budgets. It's not because we have better organization, although those things have a place. Men may mock our warnings, but friends, our greatest power is not who you are. It's who Jesus is. And when people come to know Jesus, it's not because we're cool, we're sophisticated, we've got goatees, we've got the cool somber music, woo, and we can snap our fingers and set the mood. When people come to Jesus... They come to Jesus because a faithful Christian has loved them, has prayed for them, and has shared the most offensive message with them. A guy died on a cross, the modern equivalent of the electric chair or lethal injection, so that you could be freed from your sin. Well, that's just dumb. You know what? I'll pray for you. And God can change a heart. Friends, the early Christians had no political power. The early Christians had no economic power. They had no military power, yet they changed the world and turned it upside down. Church, Christianity has always been scandalous, and any attempt to remove that scandal brings damage to the message. I've said it before. This is not original to me. My friend Jared Wilson will tell you this all the time. Let's make Christianity weird again. Let's make it weird again. Friends, why? Because you know what's weird? It's weird just to be a simple, faithful Christian in a church and never have nothing known of you. It's weird to go to church faithfully and just go to church and not worry about being the next great big thing in church world. 
our church may never make the 100 fastest growing churches, but I pray in God's world and God's view, we are seen as the most faithful people. And thank you for your faithfulness because so many in this room give so much. Thank you so much. As we close, why did Jesus have to be and die like this? Let me give you three more reasons quickly as we go. Amy, if you want to put these up for sake of time. First, he came to identify with sinners. He came to identify with sinners. Jesus is called the friend of sinners. So when he has a sign over his says that Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, he's a man who receives sinners and eats with tax collectors. He didn't come to avoid. He didn't come to run away. He didn't come to ignore. He didn't go after a certain sector of people. He went for all people. He died as he lived, surrounded by sinners and in the company of sinners. And friends, that's how awesome he is. Muhammad never did that. Buddha never did that. Confucius never did that. Zoroaster never did that. Don't you just love to say that name? Please don't name your kids Zoroaster. Uh, that can be their, their weird whatever name, but only Jesus came to die for our sins. Amen. Secondly, he came to be sin for us. You know this well. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He who knew no sin became sin for us so we might become the righteousness of God. He died because you had no way to get to heaven apart from him. And he came to save the chief of sinners, you and me. He came to save the worst of the worst. And we are the worst of the worst. If you have not been in Ephesians, then you've missed the boat on this. God, yet, who, who, we were aliens of him. We were children of wrath. We've, we followed the prince of the spirit of this world, of the air. And all those things Ephesians 2, 1 and 3 talks about. But God, who is rich in mercy, loved us because he loved us. Oh, what a joy that is. You're having a bad day. Jesus loves you. Amen. You're having a bad week. Jesus loves you and died for you. That's what it's all about. I said it last week and it bears repeating. If our church ever makes a mountain out of a molehill, something other than Jesus Christ, then may we all get on our knees and repent. There are important things to discuss at our church. There's important things to do. But friends, this is it. It's not what decorations we put up. It's not what program we do over here. It's Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Can God be glorified in those things? Yes, please hear me clearly. But it's about Jesus Christ, and that's it. Why have we so filled our churches with messages other than that? Guys, I don't care if you have the power team, the, the BMX cross bike team. I don't care if you have the greatest comedian come to this church. If it's not centered on Jesus Christ, it is for naught. Well, you're saying we shouldn't do... No, I didn't say you shouldn't do those things. But in doing those things, are you detracting or attracting closer to Jesus Christ? That's the question. Friends, next week, we look at the famous last words of Jesus. It's a somber reality that we need. Church, we love you so much. Can I say this again? As your pastor, one of your pastors here, I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, we love you all so much. You've heard some hard words the last two weeks, but I want you to know they come through us first. We love you. We care for you. If there's something in this church you need to talk about, our doors are open. Come talk to us, okay? We love you so much. Let's pray together as we close out today. Father, as we come before you and once again look at these familiar words, Father, it is very sobering because we put that Savior on that cross. Not in the way, Father, that you did because your plan was to save us, not in a plan B 
Uh, we didn't know what was happening in Genesis sort of way as some believe, but Father, the plan was always to save us. And Lord, your love is so big and so wide and so grand, and yet, Lord, we are not so big and so wide and so grand in our love outside of Christ, yet you loved us. Father, may we have that same grace towards other people in our lives, especially the household of faith. Father, for that checkout lady who can't seem to get things right on her first day and calls up the manager 20 times and we're in a rush, for that person, uh, as I heard a brother say last night at the men's dinner, who doesn't drive like we do but probably should, uh, we get frustrated, give us grace. Father, for our, our boss who seems to never be satisfied with the work we put before him or her, give us much grace. Father, for that person in our lives who, who just keeps seemingly going from worse to worse to worse to worse, Father, may you give us patience and grace that just like that thief, he or she may come to know Jesus. Father, as we look around at other churches who, who are doing this and doing that and making state papers and having a lot of momentum, Father, may you show us what you're doing among us and help us by grace and patience and faithfulness to reach our area. Father, there's so many examples, but we thank you. The greatest example is that your son died for us at just the right time. What irony that is, that we who deserve the worst were given the best all through and by and for and to Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you so much. We pray these things in Jesus' name.